Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Resilient Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Willis. If you're a frequent listener to our podcast, you'll know that usually Seth Schultz and I discuss insights from weekly interviews with 12 senior decision makers from cities and large global corporations who are navigating their organization's response to the pandemic. Now, five of these senior decision makers are chief resilience officers in their cities and are part of the Global Resilient Cities Network, GRCN. We thought it would be interesting to compare notes with GRCN and see how insights from our five chief resilience officers are resonating with their colleagues around the world. So today, you will hear a two-part conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago with Lauren Sorkin, the acting executive director of GRCN, based in Singapore. Lauren and I discussed the work that GRCN and their network of 98 chief resilience officers are doing to amplify knowledge about resilience and building resilience in cities around the world, especially in relation to responding to and recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we had one or two small technical issues while recording this episode that resulted in poor sound quality in one or two sections of the episode. But I hope you'll agree that the quality of our conversation was not affected in the least. So let's listen in. Hello, Lauren. Hello, Peter. How are you? Doing fine. Good. So I'm in Cape Town uh, in lockdown and you're in Singapore, I presume also in some degree of lockdown. Am I right? Yes, we've been in uh, lockdown since about April 8th. And so I'm here in my home office with some friendly birds chirping in the trees outside. If you if you hear them, they might <laughs> greet you as well. <laughs> so Lauren, I wanted to use this uh, opportunity of a conversation with you to find out both for myself and for our listeners a little more about this relatively newly formed organization of which you're the uh, acting executive director, the Global Resilient Cities Network. So can you just start by telling us what it is? Yes, sure. The Global Resilient Cities Network is an organization that carries on the legacy of the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative that was pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation in 2013. And so there was a transition last year and the cities in the network, um, as the 100 Resilient Cities project was winding down, spoke up and said, this is a practice. Resilience is a practice. And and in fact, the, the leadership podcasts, Peter, that you and the CROs and the business leaders in, in our network have been working on is such a great example of how this is a practice. Resilience is not an endpoint that you get to. It's, it's something that you practice and you keep embedding into your cities. And the cities in, in the network, and there are 98 of them across five regions, came together and said, this is a practice that we want to continue and we want to continue together. And so myself and several of the other professional staff from the former 100 Resilient Cities Project have helped our cities to facilitate the transition to a new organization that is really driven by the cities. It's a city-led network that focuses on sharing knowledge and consolidating resources and uh, opportunities to implement on resilience in their cities. And so we went from a focus on building understanding, building a movement, 
to actually deepening that capacity and then using that deep capacity to deliver and to really invest in the communities and critical infrastructure that our cities need to be resilient to the shocks and stresses that they face like COVID-19. That's a wonderful thing. And can you say a little more about what this idea of a resilient city is? It's not really so much a a definition that I'm looking for as say something about the vision, because you've obviously been motivated by this for a number of years. I know you were um, closely involved in the leadership of the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. And having spoken now to and interviewed um, several weeks in a row, five of the chief resilience officers that you introduced me to for this project that we're doing with the Resilience Shift, it's clear that there's a uh, the, the people who are doing this with you, these chief resilience officers in the network, are remarkably passionate and thoughtful people. So I'm very interested to hear what what is your vision that drives you behind this idea of resilient cities? That's a great question. Uh, it's really the cities and their potential to lead meaningful change that motivates me personally. In terms of where we're going with Global Resilient Cities Network, it's about the capacity of these cities and the individuals and communities, institutions, businesses, and systems within them to survive and thrive in the face of disaster. And that's, that's a definition that we've been using to drive the work for this past six plus years. And now that we have cities and I mentioned that 98 of our cities that are active uh, in the network, now that we have these cities who have chief resilience officers, who have resilience strategies, and who are able to demonstrate the practice, they have something to share with the global community. So our vision for the network is to continue to keep that group of cities engaged and delivering and help them to put together resources to drive that. And so we're doing that now in priority areas, COVID-19 being one of them, where resilient recovery is a priority for 89% of our cities and other areas around circular economy. So we have a vision now to use that knowledgeable community of cities now to deliver in those specific areas where cities have an ability to lead and to drive change and to deliver more positive outcomes for their citizens and also for the environment and for society. So that, that's, our, that's our vision, Peter. We have cities who are able to do that and we're working with other partners to bring resources together and then deliver on the ground. I think the other really important part of the network's vision is around amplification of this practice. So while these 98 cities are the core and will remain the core of Global Resilient Cities Network, this is not a time for clubs. This is a time for coalitions. And COVID-19 proves that, you know, we are much more at risk than we thought we were, right? And that resilience requires us to think about things like robust infrastructure, allowing parents from work from home, right? That IT infrastructure our health systems and all of these these public goods, and that we can't do that incrementally, right? We've got to move forward. And so we're also committed to really amplifying that knowledge, to bringing that to any city who's interested around the world. So 
we do a lot of knowledge and communication, like the work that we're doing with you to bring that knowledge and also to bring tools and resources so that cities can take this knowledge and the spirit of wanting to collaborate and actually apply it on the ground. Fascinating. Um, it seems to me that uh, your the the time is so absolutely now for what you're doing, uh, and, and you, you could not have a sharper focus on the need for resilient infrastructure, resilient leadership, resilient thinking, uh, and resilience uh, skills and resilience and so on than in the midst of a global pandemic. I love this idea you're, you're articulating of your network, not only learning as they go and sharing amongst themselves so that they accelerate their own learning about how to do resilience professionally within large cities, but then offering that out to um, the wider body of cities around the world. What your, well, I tell you what, first of all, I actually, a question arose for me about your funding. Who is funding this? Because it seems to me you've got an enormous potential for growth, which we'll get to in a moment as to what you might do in the future. But who is funding this tremendous project? So we are very grateful to have received continuing core funding from the Rockefeller Foundation to help us make this transition. Uh, as a part of the transition, Rockefeller also challenged us to bring in other interested partners to be part of this process. And so uh, to date, we have also mobilized partnerships uh, with the Tomasic Foundation International here in Singapore, um, with the Citibank Foundation. And uh, we are to support one of those specific delivery areas that I, I spoke about earlier in particular in circular economy. We are also working with the Circulate Initiative and the Oceans Conservancy as well. Right. That sounds quite solid. If we turn now to the, this very extraordinary, and uh, I presume completely unforeseen uh, challenge and opportunity that's arisen for you and the organization with the COVID-19 pandemic, what if you sort of stand back now, we've been in it for two, three months, and, and you look at the effect that it's had on the GRCN, Global Resilient Cities Network, let's call it the GRCN now for short, the effect on the organization and on your and your leadership team's strategy. I would love to know what has emerged out of this upending. It's a, that's a great question. We... We started this conversation a while ago, Peter. It was back in January when I was reaching out to our colleagues in Huangshe, which is a city that's only 70 kilometers from Wuhan. And instead of us exchanging our usual uh, greetings and, and wishing each other a prosperous and healthy and happy um, year ahead, we were talking about the, the Nobel coronavirus and the fact that our colleagues from Huangshe had been uh, in lockdown already and had, in many cases, left for the Chinese New Year holiday with just their cell phones, no laptops, and, and city officials were trying their best to, to run the city with what they had. And when I was communicating with the team in Huangshe, I realized that you know, this, this was exactly the kind of a shock that we had been preparing for as, as a network. Mm. It was one that would be exacerbated by 
mass urbanization by globalization, the fact that our economy and our societies are more interconnected than ever before, and, and also by climate change and these cascading crisis upon crisis situations that we have now. And so while a lot of governments and institutions and organizations were, were trying to, to figure out what their strategy would be, you know, we, we knew that we had to start to speak up. We knew we had to do what uh, a Resilient Cities Network does, which is to communicate about it, to share knowledge, and then to amplify that so that we could get information to the right people at the right time and save lives. So what, what that's meant concretely is that we very quickly, between uh, mid-January and uh, I would say the second, third week of February, we developed a three-pronged approach to dealing with COVID-19. The first was uh, focused on making sure that our cities and our network had the information that they needed in real time. And so we created confidential peer-to-peer -peer sharing channels um, for cities to ask questions, share policies, and really communicate with their peers globally. During the 100 Resilient Cities Project, all of the communications were very curated by the organization. So uh, we had knowledge exchanges that we would prepare for for weeks, if not months. Um, and the contact lists were managed very centrally. So when you talk about a management decision, the management decision that was facing my colleagues and me was, do we continue to try to structure all of this? Or do we create platforms? Do we create the architecture and create ground rules? and then liberalize things because this is a situation where information flows have to move fast. And clearly we decided on, on the latter. We, we opened them up and we created WhatsApp groups with the entire global community, as well as regional groups and then thematic groups so that CROs could have the space to talk to colleagues. Um, so that was the first part of it. The second prong was that amplification piece. And we realized from a very early stage that we needed to open up this conversation, that this was not a conversation for 98 cities. This was a conversation for any city who needed good, reliable information and knowledge about how to respond and recover with resilience. And, and so that's why I reached out to our partners at the World Bank and said, listen, this is, this is a conversation we want to have globally. Um, and, and we really want to have the right kind of conversation around this response and recovery. We don't want to be piecemeal. We don't want to be ad hoc. We want to look at cities as a system and in particular, look at what's going on in poor and vulnerable communities. And so we teamed up with the World Bank to create the, the speaker series, which we continue to deliver weekly. And then the third prong uh, of this strategy was to recognize and create the structure for a longer term process, right? Resilience is a process. And so a resilient recovery is going to require us to look at the different systems within a city that need to be built back much better, right? We, we can't, as, as we keep saying, build back on foundations that are broken. So we set up cities for resilient recovery as a platform and as a coalition to put together the tools, the trainings, and the thematic programs that will help cities to access information at the right time and a community of peers 
who wants to engage around those topics. Wow, that's a, a brilliant uh, program. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here getting kind of childishly excited at the scope and relevance <laughs> and, and sharpness of your collective thinking about this. And I've, uh, I've attended one or two of your speaker series uh, webinars where you're partnering with the World Bank. And I thought the format was excellent and the material right on um, very, very sort of ground upward accounts from people who are very close to what's going on in some of the frontline cities. And not that all cities aren't frontline now. Uh, so just to continue this thought, uh, Lauren, so that was your, your three-pronged strategy. And mm-hmm. I just marvel at and love that um, decision to decentralize the communication, which in a way I think is one of the core principles of a complex crisis or disaster, is that it's in the communication that things go wrong fastest. And you need a certain degree of central communication in, if you're running a disaster. But um, very soon you need to empower people to talk to relevant others um, across the system. Otherwise, the bottlenecks just burst um, if you're trying to centralize it too much. So, Lauren, welcome back into this conversation. For our listeners, I must just explain that we lost our connection after 17 minutes of our conversation. And we've had to wait a few days when we could get you and me back on the Zoom together. And here we are, delighted to have you back for the rest of this conversation. I hope you're well. Thanks, Peter. It's good to be back. Great. So let's jump in. I I wanted to ask you next about the enormous challenge and opportunity which faces big cities all over the world in the developed and the, the developing world, which is that coming out of this pandemic, as we very slowly seem to be, with, and with huge amounts of money being made available from fiscuses and, and loans and so on, I wanted to ask you what you're seeing in terms of cities' desire, which is, I think, always there, to build more and better infrastructure. Because here there's this extraordinary moment when doing that may be possible and changing infrastructure as well. But uh, there are also tremendous pressures to do it quickly, and that might mean dirty, quick and dirty, rather than quick and intelligent and resilient and so on. So I'd love your thoughts on what you think is unfolding and might unfold here. Thanks, Peter. I think this, this is really one of the biggest questions as cities pivot from uh, response to recovery. And actually, as they stay in that space between that many will be in for some time, as we continue to to exit lockdown carefully and stimulate the economy. Infrastructure is a very clear choice and an obvious choice for governments who are trying to stimulate their economies now. And we're already seeing some places where particularities of the COVID-19 challenge are allowing cities to prioritize the resilience in their infrastructure. For example, where they are building up low carbon and um, mobility projects that have health benefits. For example, the absolute explosion of cycling lanes across a number of cities, whether that be Milan or Melbourne or you know, pedestrianizing streets in, in Oakland and, and other places. So we are seeing 
those types of opportunities where having uh, restrictions around movement are creating priorities for certain types of infrastructure. However, the pressure to get projects out quickly is a concern for cities in that they might need to take projects that are readily available and get them quickly approved. And so doing things that require a little bit more engineering to crowd in those multiple benefits could be at risk. I think that's that's the space where we do need some more intentional space creation on, on the part of the governments that are providing these packages and also the, the financiers. We've seen a lot in the past few years in the sustainable finance space or in the climate finance space. And in fact, this is not the time to pump the brakes on those types of those types of quality controls and those types of support, whether those are policy or technical assistance, project preparation. This is actually the time to increase those and to increase them right in the places like in cities that need project preparation support to make sure that those stimulus dollars are spent in the right ways in infrastructure projects. Yes, this is really raising a very interesting issue, which has surfaced in several of my conversations with our participants. Because what what I'm hearing behind what you're describing is the critical importance of individual guerrilla activists for resilience, for sustainability, and so on within city administrations and also within the, the funding institutions that are laying out the terms on which they will lend or supply money. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd call them, you know, so much guerrilla activists or, you know, bands of brothers or bands of sisters, bands of brothers and sisters working together on this. I think one of the the most inspiring things about working in resilience infrastructure, which is a space that, you know, I worked on before I, I joined the resilient cities movement, even back in the days of working with the Asian Development Bank in the early days of climate response and infrastructure. What happens when you plan for truly resilient infrastructure is you have to crowd in expertise across your different sectors. And one of the most exciting things about doing that, and, and this is going back Wow, almost <laughs> 10 years now, Peter, was that when we would look at what you needed to do to understand the true context in which your infrastructure project was taking place, you had to call on the folks who were working in the different systems, transport, water, sanitation, gender, and being able to do that across expertise areas. That's what allows you to design the resilience project. So in fact, you, you need that team. You need that cross-cutting expertise. And one of the things that I think the COVID-19 crisis provides is that focusing mechanism. You can actually say as an administration, okay, we need all hands on deck to make sure that we're crowding in the following things to this project and we need to do it fast. Yes, I uh, absolutely. I, I think you're spot on about the COVID-19 accelerating and focusing um, talents and capabilities. I suppose what I'm, what I was Thinking of when I say guerrilla activist is more a state of mind. And I'm, I'm just thinking of a couple of conversations I've had in the last few weeks with 
one of our participants who's a climate expert within a multilateral finance institution. And he has seen it as his task and opportunity with all this huge amount of money now starting to move out to weakened governments who desperately need stimulus projects and so on, is to present the the logic, which for you and me is completely as obvious as the nose on our face, that when you build back and your infrastructure projects need to be A, resilient to likely threats in the future, and B, as multi-purpose as possible, because that's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck. Uh, and because that's simply not, unfortunately, it's not a widespread, widely distributed mindset, value set. I still regard people like that as activists within the system because it's, they are always having to work somewhat against the mainstream, which is efficiency and speed and more short-term oriented, perhaps an unkind characterization. But does that make any sense yeah. to you? It does. It does. I mean, I think <laughs> there's always this tension between efficiency and quality at a certain point. In or speed, I shouldn't say efficiency, but speed and quality. And what I think helps people to to move on from that, and what in fact helps that kind of activist investor or activist designer, um, is the ability to make those benefits tangible. And so, in this case, the the ability to say, actually, you can't build your really nice and efficient sanitation system where the groundwater is being extracted because they needed to create some water supply and uh, sanitation on the other side of this neighborhood. The urgencies that have been revealed here in terms of the lack of adequate systems really help to create tangible examples. We're not saying in abstract, oh, there's an informality problem, right? There are too many people living in poverty in slums or in settlements. We're actually saying, here is that place in said city where this many cases of the disease have spread because people don't have adequate sanitation, right? We're able to point to that and say, actually, you've got to design the solution that gives you those benefits that otherwise we were trying to advocate for. And I appreciate that that positioning as the climate person. That's what that's what I used to do in a multilateral as well, because at all times you're advocating for making a piece of infrastructure more resilient to a threat that hasn't yet manifested. Mm. Or you're saying, let's not build here because in 15 or 20 years, that's where the water may be, right? With sea level rise, that may may no longer be safe. So that kind of activism is helped by having a tangible example right in front of you um, with COVID-19 and saying, actually, we have to take care of this systemic flaw, right? We have to take care of some of these inequality issues because we as a city are only as strong as our most vulnerable residents are, right? If there are still cases spreading in these neighborhoods, they will make their way into the community. That's, uh, I'd like to go a little bit deeper onto that last point, because I think this is really profoundly interesting as we are uh, at this current phase of dealing with the pandemic. Because what you're alluding to is the, uh, on the one hand, the historic 
reluctance of those who have made them their circumstances and their suburbs and their central business districts reasonably comfortable and well supplied and so on. Their reluctance to see money spent on the marginal parts of the city. And it's quite hard to make the case why they should, other than, you know, it's obvious again to you and me that if you've got people dying on the periphery, the center is not well. But in the case of this pandemic, you've got a virus that simply ignores class and wealth and topography. And are you therefore saying that you foresee opportunities within cities now, now and in the next few months and years, to actually shift some of the basic prejudices and resource allocations that have been keeping cities divided? Can we, can we go that far or am I being a little idealistic here? I hope we can go further, Peter. I think the opportunity is there. It is battling against vested interests, right? I think one of the most shocking stories early on in the pandemic was about right, the gentleman who flies in his private jet and lands in Paris and, and is told, no, you can't get down. It doesn't matter if you're willing to go into quarantine in an expensive hotel, we've shut the borders, right? And And so what is clear is there are still perceptions that it's fine. You you can <laughs> you can separate yourself out and and ride this out and and see what happens. But I think the excuses for that and the narrative around that is increasingly abhorrent to to the majority of of the population. And if we ever had a moment to really mobilize and extend benefits and deal with some of these deep seated equity issues. This should be it. And where, where there's opportunity is in many of the cities and certainly in, in all of the cities that we're working in, the leaders, the city leaders there have prioritized resilience and have prioritized looking at where their vulnerabilities are and what vulnerable communities need. So they have already articulated these people, these communities who need help. And in most cases, they have outlined the ways in which they need to respond. Um, and, and we're actually seeing this happen. It's not, it's not theoretical. In Chennai, the resilience strategy deals with informality head on. And the first thing that our chief resilience officer was able to do was to work across private sector, government, some Hollywood stars, um, and bring together a fund that went to provide immediate food relief, but also advocacy so that people in these communities who weren't able to go to their jobs understood their rights and understood what their next steps would be, right? Not just how to, to get the next meal. So I think where there are huge, huge inequalities, which is in almost all of the cities uh, in the world, this is a moment where that's possible, but it has to be really intentionally followed up. People within an administration, within a city government have to be assigned to follow the issue and to track and to report on progress to help build the, the strength of these vulnerable communities. So I want to, to, we're coming towards the end of our time, but I, it, you've raised several fascinating questions. And I want to just go down this line of the, the world of business inside cities, because 
part of the inequality is that in, in any city, you'll have a concentration of, of businesses who are generating wealth and creating employment and all those good things. But they also represent the ability to float up above poverty and um, and mess and disorder and so on, which is kind of typically pushed to the periphery of big cities. And I, I just wonder, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this as to whether you think the COVID-19 pandemic has rather like we saw here in Cape Town with the drought, where the private mm. sector really stepped forward and revealed itself as having a kind of feet planted in the community. And because the drought affected everybody, like this virus, it potentially affects mm. everybody. People turned around and looked at the corporates and said, oh, you're actually kind of amongst us. And they <laughs> ended up collaborating really effectively with the city, particularly around messaging and communicating and in various other ways. And I'm just yes. wondering whether you're detecting a, a shift, because I think the politicians are not coming out terribly well, by and large, from the last few years, and particularly from the pandemic, a lot, well, a lot of them aren't. And I, whereas I think some quite a lot of corporates have behaved well. What are your thoughts? I think when it comes to businesses in communities, if businesses don't see themselves as actually understanding being part of the the ecosystem, the location where they're based, there there's a problem, right? Because if if businesses are not understanding the context that they operate in, what those risks and opportunities are, they, they won't be able to succeed. And I think that we're seeing that businesses now are really looking at their risk and opportunity as very tied to the communities where they're based. And so in, in an emergency, they're able to respond um, and provide communities with support. And I think we're seeing that pretty universally, whether it's you know companies stepping forward to allow their logistics services to be used for food distribution or starting uh, funds using their technical expertise to help cities with immediate needs in terms of consultancy policy advisory. Those, those things are happening. I think what will be very interesting to see is how those experiences inform then the values and the way that these businesses operate. There have been so many interesting declarations by the private sector um, in banking and finance, um, in certain industries that deal with potentially harmful or hazardous chemicals or materials about working better, about having these outcomes in mind. And I think this is the time where that action in terms of relief can be, if we're careful and intentional about it, cemented into these values and collaborations to actually build back better together between private sector and local actors. So I'm going to close with a request to you then, Lauren, because I, I like what you've just said, that you encourage the chief resilience officers in your network to put the building of generative relationships with the private sector in their cities a little higher on their agenda, because I, I suspect the history is traditionally transactional. Those relationships are transactional, but there's nothing like a disaster to bring out the humanity in us. And I think 
the simple fact is that businesses are way more capable than many of the just sort of person for person, asset for asset, than many of the cities that they operate in. And yet that capability is kept at arm's length because the relationship with the city is traditionally transactional. But something has happened, I think, in this pandemic might open that door. And I think your resilience officers are well equipped to put a foot in the door and make sure it doesn't close and possibly opens a bit further. Absolutely. I would agree with that. I think we we tend to, when we think of business, think of big brands, big corporations. But when we think about our cities, the fact is that you know, anywhere between 50 and 80% in some cities of the local economies are made up of small and medium enterprises. These are inherently local actors. And so there's a real symbiosis that's required between cities and business uh, to be resilient. Yeah. Well, this, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, Lauren, and I hope we get an opportunity to do the same again soon. And in the meantime, all possible strength to your and the Global Resilient Cities Network's elbow as you and your network of chief resilience officers puzzle out how cities can come out of this pandemic stronger. All the very best, and thank you. Thank you, Peter. Take very good care. Thank you, and goodbye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this special episode. I think Lauren and her team are doing remarkable and potentially highly influential work. As you will have noticed, Seth and I have not done our regular weekly interview roundup this week, but we've been keeping busy. In the spirit of this project, we've been reflecting on the insights distilled during the first half of this project. If you like, we've done a midterm review, and we've captured emerging lessons for leadership during a crisis that have accumulated so far. We will create some special content around these emerging lessons, and they'll be coming your way soon, including some special podcast episodes. So please keep an eye out for these. If you've found us through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and want to find out more about our project, please click on the link in the notes below. There's a lot more content on resilient leadership for you to explore. On behalf of the project team and the Resilience Shift, this is Peter Willis. Thank you for listening. I hope we meet again soon.